Our second reading is taken from the prophecy of Micah, chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Micah, chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. It's headed, helpfully, a promised ruler for Bethlehem. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem of Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And he will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. We will raise up against them seven shepherds, even eight commanders, who will rule the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with the drawn sword. He will deliver us from the Assyrians when they invade our land and march across our borders. Thank you, uh, Barry, for reading God's word for us this morning. So let's, uh, let's pray as we look at uh, this word this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it can be read freely here this morning. And we pray that you give us receptive hearts to understand this word and for your spirit to be at work in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, here we are on the first uh, Sunday in December 2017. How quickly the year has gone by. And right here we are in the midst of the celebrations of Christmas coming up very soon. The shops tell us the message of Christmas. Our TV ads tell us that Christmas is around the corner, but more importantly for us as Christians, we pray that we will know the true meaning of Christmas as well as for our society as well. Well, this morning we're going to look at Micah chapter 5, verses 2 to 5a, which is our text for this morning. I want to encourage you to keep your Bibles open to uh, the book of Micah as well as have a cross-reference when possible to Matthew chapter 2 as well. So let me encourage you to keep uh, God's word open uh, this morning as we look at this section of scripture. Well, what do we know about Micah? What do we know about Micah? The name Micah means, what shall I ask of Yahweh? What shall I ask of Yahweh? Normally, the prophets are identified 
by their father's name by saying the son of the father of so and so. But Micah is identified from his home city, Moresheth, a town on the outskirts of Jerusalem, a country town. Micah is identified in terms of his location and not his parents. Micah 1 verse 1 says this, The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moreset in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Ezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw his prophecy concerning Samaria, northern and, and Jerusalem, the southern part. Micah gives his message in Judah during the time of three kings, Jotham, 742 BC to 735 BC, Ahaz, 735 to 715 BC, Ezekiah, 715 to 686 BC. He would have ministered around the period of 730 BC to 690 BC and probably also around the time of Isaiah the prophet. Now, why is Micah writing this, um, this letter or this book, if you want to call it that way? Micah is prosecuting a case against the people of God due to their idolatry against God. You have your Bibles. I will look at Micah chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Please. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentations like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Well, friends, what has happened to God's people? What has happened to them? They had experienced the goodness of God. They had experienced God's blessings. And yet, at this point in time in their history, they had abandoned God. They have broken the covenant with God. And there was a moral decline, a turning away from God. And we see this evidenced in three ways. In Micah chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, we see this, friends, a moral decline with corrupt leaders. And God has a word addressed to these leaders of the nation. Have a look, please. And I said, Hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You hate the good and love the evil. You tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones. You who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. I mean, terrible language, right? You look at this language and you think, what is going on here? Of course, this is not literally, uh, not literal language that is, that's really taking place at the time. It is symbolic language of the state of affairs with the leaders. Do we get the picture? No justice. They love evil. They hate the good. Living off the people. And then God says this. But the time is coming when these same leaders will cry out for help. And God will not listen to them. 
in chapter 3 verse 4 then they will cry to the Lord but he will not answer them he will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil further friends we see another decline that the pro with the prophets and teachers have a look at chapter 3 5 to 7 thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray who cry peace when they have something to eat but declare war against them who puts nothing into their mouths therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination the sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them the seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame they shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God what a pathetic situation the prophets who should have known better were leading the people astray the preachers who should have known better were leading God's flock astray can you imagine that I'm sure we can can't we we know what's happening in our own country right we know some churches for example who are supposed to preach the word bring the word of God to God's people you the precious people of God and they come up and talk all other things but the word you know the church in Sweden actually I read this article this past week the 28th of November Church of Sweden directs clergy to stop referring to God as he you see they don't want God to be called as he and uh, the 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 letter goes out to all the clergy to to ministers to replace the word he with the generic God they also want, don't want preaching that uses the name Lord because it implies a male the masculine and so last week 250 leaders in Sweden met at an eight-day convention and in a break from traditional Christianity, one of the updates instruct pastors to no longer open services. Listen to this. To open services in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, but to use gender-neutral phrases such as in the name of God and the Holy Trinity. What has happened to the church? What has happened to the leaders of the church what's going on for God's people who come and hear these kind of things being taught to them what a conflicting situation what a sad situation you see friends theological liberalism is rampant today and so we are ministers and church leaders who are wolves in sheep's clothing and so beware be alert if I was to come and preach another gospel to you, I'm sure my elders will one pull me up, but secondly, my presbytery will call me and say, Chris, that's the end of your ministry at St. Stephen's, and rightly so, and rightly so. There's no excuse. The third, the moral decline, was a complacent people and priest. Have a look, please, in verses 9 to 11. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and who make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. The heads give judgment for a bribe, its priest teach for a price. 
Its prophets practice divination for money, yet they lean on the Lord. Have you seen that? Look at that in verses chapter 3, 9 to 11. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. <laughs> what a thing, eh? They are doing all of these things, taking bribes, corrupt, taking money for saying things, teaching God's people the wrong things, and then they have the audacity to say this, Is not the Lord in our midst? No disaster is going to come upon us. There was bribery going on. Corruption. They detested justice. They were crooked in their ways. And the sad thing is that they did not see their sin. Or did they? Did they or did they not? Because according to them, the Lord is in our midst. We can lean upon the Lord. Aha. Uh -huh. After all, is not God the God of love? Have you not heard that? God is love. And in love we must do all things. See, love is based on truth. You can't separate love from truth. And God's truth demonstrates love. And love is connected to truth. What did God do, friends? They got their theology wrong. And what is God's word to them in chapter 3, verse 12? Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the house a wooded height. Why would God bring judgment upon them? Because God, our God, is holy. And his justice is holy. He cannot and will not overlook our rebellion. He cannot and he will not overlook our sin. The overall theme of the book of Micah is judgment, discipline and restoration. And it is the theme that runs throughout the book. And so as opposed to this, these corrupt leaders, these priests, these false prophets, Micah is called to minister and to deliver a strong message to them. Look at 3.8 But as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgressions and to Israel his sin. And come now to chapter 5. And what do we see in chapter 5, verse 1? Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. Here's the call to get ready. Their city would fall. Their king would be removed. And all power to resist will be gone. It will be a dark period in the life of God's people. And their rebellion led to them being attacked by the ruthless. Who do you think? Assyrian army. And later, the Babylonians. Remember what happened? They came in. They plundered. They killed. They brought down the temple. Everything took place as God's judgment came upon his people. So friends, let us never... You see, 722 BC, the ruthless Assyrian armies swept through. 587 BC, the Babylonians swept through. You see, the bottom line is never mess around with God. Is that clear? 
never mess around with God. For our God cannot be mocked and he cannot be deceived. Do you think he can be deceived? Do you think he can be mocked? Never. Never and never. Will God stay true, friends? To... So in the midst of this, let me say this. Now the question, there was a remnant people there in this nation at the time. See, the divided kingdom. And for the remnant, the faithful ones who had trusted the Lord, the question was this, or the questions were these questions. Will there be any hope for the future for God's people? What will become of all the promises that God made to Abraham to make him a great nation? Will God stay true to his word? And within this context of judgment and chaos, Micah gives a prophecy, a message with a ray of hope. A wonderful hope. There is a silver lining in the cloud. There is a message of good news. God has not and will not abandon his faithful people. He will stay true to his word. And so we can trust the word of God. The Old Testament and the New Testament as God's inspired total word of God. Given to us. And so in your outlines you have this morning. You see that insignificant place 2A. You see the amazing a king that is spoken of and you have an assured peace don't you see that in this text here is there hope for the future the answer is yes God has an answer look at chapter 5 verse 2 A. but you Bethlehem Ephrathah though you are small among the clans of Judah out of you will come for me what a statement but you, Bethlehem Ephrata. Bethlehem means the house of bread. Ephrata means fruitful. Bethlehem is a small and insignificant town, a nowhere place on the outskirts of Jerusalem. They were small among the clans of Judah. Each tribe was divided into thousands of clans. But if a community was too small to get a thousand people together, they were joined with other tribes. And Bethlehem was so lowly that it was not even counted among the possessions of Judah. In fact, the division under Joshua, it was omitted altogether. <laughs> right? Joshua chapter 15. It was a village that was despised because it was so small. I'm not really sure what are the smallest towns in, in uh, Victoria, let alone Australia. You might know it better than me. Right? I know that we ministered and lived in a country town called Nurat. Have you heard of Nurat? Well, some of you have. <laughs> and even recently, I heard recently it was taken off the map. Like it's not, not uh, in, in the whole system anymore. Little Nurat has been swallowed up with the other big town. But things happened in that town. There are people who live in that place, right? We have friends who live there. You see, the point here is it was so small that it was despised. Oh, Bethlehem, man, has such a small place. What good can come from there? It's an unheard of place. An insignificant place in the eyes of many. But not in the eyes of God. Not in the eyes of God. Look at what happened, for, for example. 
In 1 Samuel 16, the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to whom? To Jesse of Bethlehem. You see, Bethlehem was not where David reigned. Remember David, the great king? But it was the city where he was born. David, Israel's greatest king, was a Bethlehemite. He was a Bethlehemite. But the reference here is clearly, as we see, to Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. It's not a reference to David, but to another one who will be greater than King David. And so let me quickly point out to a couple of other passages. Second Samuel 7, 12 and 13. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then we read this in Second Samuel. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So, friends, David the king had come and gone. Now what? Had God forgotten his promise? No. But now, from this insignificant town, Bethlehem, the city of David the greatest king of Israel, one greater than David, was coming. The focal point in God's plan in redemptive history is none other than this insignificant town of Bethlehem, which is that Israel's future greatness does not depend on a great human king, but rather on divine intervention to bring greatness out of nothing, from an insignificant town. What a blessing that is. And come with me to the Gospel of Matthew. You have your Bibles? Matthew chapter 2. Okay? In Matthew chapter 2, we have two groups mentioned here. Very interesting. I don't have the time to go into all the details here this morning. We have the chief priest and the Sadducees. Right? The chief priests, they were willing to accommodate the Romans and Greek culture to keep their wealth and also their power. The teachers of the law were the scribes. They were conservatives. Two opposing groups. Do you think they'll agree on anything? It's like asking the Labour Party and the coalition to agree on something. Well, it seems that they're agreeing on lots of things together at the moment. Right? Did you get that? It's okay. Uh, right? It's trying to get two opposing political parties to agree on anything. Generally speaking, they don't, right? So they, these two groups, these two groups were, were, were diametrically opposite to each other. And so Herod calls them together and says, and we won't go into all but Herod, uh, uh, Herod's life, but we see this in, in Matthew chapter... Uh, so he called them together and said, where has this child been born? And what did they say collectively? Micah, I mean Matthew chapter 2, 5 and 6. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for as. So, so it is written by whom? The prophet. And what is written by the prophet? And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That is it, friends. 
But God said through Micah 700 years before the event these two groups the Sadducees and the, the, the chief priests who never saw eye to eye on things they say quickly immediately they are in Bethlehem as the prophet had written can you see the connection 700 years the prophecy is made later the event takes place can you trust the word of God this morning can you do we That's the point, isn't it? And Micah, you see, our God, I was thinking about this, our God is the God of the insignificant. Don't you think so? An insignificant town, Bethlehem. No one's bothered about Bethlehem. An insignificant young teenager, Mary. No one had heard about Mary. Right? From an obscure place, God, God takes Mary and gives her the best privilege ever for a woman to bear the child. Jesus. Jesus was born in an in a insignificant place in, 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 um, in a stable. Right? And God is the God of the insignificant. He takes insignificant people like I won't say about you. Take an insignificant person like me brings me to salvation and puts me in front of you which I've never ever dreamed of ever would happen. And so I am here standing because of God's amazing grace who can take an insignificant guy born in a way of place in Colombo, in Sri Lanka and give salvation and bring to be his child. You have your own story, don't you? Our God is the God of the insignificant. He takes broken people, wounded people, hurting people, people from no background, lifts them up, brings them to salvation, puts their feet on the rock of Christ and says, you are mine. How good is God? Do you see that goodness to you this morning? So we see an amazing king here as well, isn't it? Well, have a look here. Who will be ruler? Very quickly, the four things that we see here, we go through this very quickly, is rule, his origin, his birth, and his care. Notice he's a ruler. He's a ruler with power. He will display his power, his rule, in miracles. He displayed his rule over the cross. He displayed his rule at the resurrection from the grave. He will display his rule by establishing a kingdom that will last forever, drawing boys, girls, men, and women from every nation. He's a ruler who will ultimately come in all his fullness, the book of Revelation. He will display his ultimate rule when he returns. He reigns today. His origin, notice origin, friends. He is not like an earthly king. Notice who's coming forth is from old, from ancient days. His origin is of old. He was not created. He has no beginning. He's the preeminent one. He's the one who John speaks of in this way in John chapter 1 when we have these words. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And let me refer you to a stunning, absolutely stunning statement that we see in John chapter 12, verse 41. 
Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Have a think about that, friends. John says, Isaiah saw Jesus and spoke of his glory. Did Isaiah see the preeminent Jesus? I think he did. The preeminent one. His birth. Have a look at verse 3 in Micah chapter 5, please. Therefore is, he shall give birth... So, Therefore he shall give them up, sorry, until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. What a statement. In the fullness of time, Jesus came to earth to be born in a miraculous way through a woman, Mary. The virgin birth, whose birth we celebrate this Christmas. The other day I was uh, driving and I heard on the radio, one of these uh, FM uh, radio stations, Oh, we are in the silly season. Have you heard that? The Christmas season has suddenly become the silly season. I almost felt like calling back and saying, it might be silly to you. It's not silly to us. It's not the silly season, friends. Or is it? I know we've got to do our shopping. I know you've got to do A, B, C, D things, right? For Christmas. But it's not the silly season. It's a season that we as Christians celebrate the most remarkable event Ever in the history of the world. That sent the angels singing glory to God in the highest. It's not a silly season. To the world it might look a silly season. But in God's eyes it's not a silly season. It's a season when God has spoken. And is speaking. And continues to speak. That this is my son whom I sent from heaven. This is my son who was born of a woman. This is my son whom the prophet spoke of. This is Jesus my son. Whose birth we celebrate. Nothing silly about that. It's ridiculous. I think you may have a different view. But my own view is it's not a silly season. So we don't even say. For example. Merry Christmas. It's the festive season. Even though it's all about Christmas. <laughs> so friends. God sent his son. And then the rest of his brothers. Verse 3. Uh, shall return to the people of Israel. This could be a reference to the many Jews who believed in him, but it may also be a reference to both Jews and Gentiles who trust him and his family. The point is that Micah anticipates the coming of one who is far more than just a political leader. And then four, verses 4 and 5a. Uh, what, uh, 4 and 5 See here this, isn't it? 5a is care. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock. What a remarkable statement that is. And that's what Jesus did. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for my sheep. Prophetic fulfillment. Jesus came. The word uh, good in the Greek, kalos, is a comprehensive meaning, means excellent. And Jesus then is, is I am the good shepherd. We see that he alone is the preeminently excellent shepherd. The one who gave his life for you. The one who walks alongside us. The one who knows his sheep. And Jesus gave his life for his flock. This is the shepherd king whom we worship today. And we have an assured peace. Have a look at 5a please. And he shall be their peace. How is it that he shall be their peace? This is not a sentimental peace. The nice good feeling of peace. But this is peace with God. 
God's peace to those who trust his son. He gives his peace to troubled hearts. Do not let your hearts be troubled, he said in John 14. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. He's the Prince of Peace, our Isaiah passage we, uh, we are memorizing this month. And so as we bring this message to a close, what we see here this morning, friends, that as we trust in him, we have an assured peace, a peace with God. We need to repent of our sins. As we trust him, he gives us his peace. You see, repentance, we spoke about this in our growth group recent, uh, last week, in fact. You see, repentance is a, is a rare message in today's church because it requires confrontation with an uncomfortable subject, sin. And sin does not sell well in our feel-good culture, does it? No. When sin gets personal, people get agitated. But you know what? Jesus came. He took your sin and mine. And he gives us his peace for you with God. And a peace that passes all human understanding in our hearts. What a peace is that? You know, we don't need to wait till we die to have those words, R.I.P., isn't it? On our tombstone, rest in peace. We know the sentiment of that. We know that. But there's a deeper peace than that. A peace with God. And his peace helps us to live a peaceful life in this world. Peaceful relationships in the home. Peaceful connections with your work colleagues. Peaceful relationships around us. Because we have experienced his peace. And this communion this morning is a reminder that God gave his son that we might have his peace through Jesus. So, Micah should make us confident in the way we see Jesus this morning and the way we celebrate Christmas. Seven centuries after Micah penned those wonderful words of prophecy, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And an angel announced to the shepherds nearby, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The child of Bethlehem has come. Prophecy has been fulfilled. What a joy. What a joy. More than that, what a Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for your word, that we can trust it. The prophecy has been fulfilled. Christ the Redeemer came. Lord, this morning, we pray that we will be encouraged in our hearts, strengthened in our faith, deepened in our understanding of who you are, and celebrate Christ in our hearts as we come to the supper this morning. Let us do so with grateful and thankful hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.